Welcome to Tartan Talk with USA Kilts, our interview series where we chat with interesting people in the Celtic heritage scene, industry insiders, artists, influencers, you name it. Come with us as we highlight unique perspectives and inside stories. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the conversation. I'd like to welcome James Wiley. He's an assistant curator at VNA Dundee and a driving force behind the Tartan exhibition that's currently on at VNA Dundee now through January 14th. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so give me your 30-second uh, intro background. Where did you grow up? You know, where'd you come from? Who'd you do? Where'd you get to where you are right now? So my background is um, I'm originally from a farm on the east coast of Scotland. Uh, so I've always had wool in my life, you know, growing up. I got interested in history through my grandparents as well. And rest is actually history because then I ended up working in the um, local museums in Angus. And from that, I actually then went to the art college in Dundee. And from studying art, I then sort of jumped ship then over to the v Dundee when it first then opened in 2018. Nice. Now, a lot of people have no idea, I didn't, what goes into a museum's process in setting up an exhibit. Um, and I know that you had something like 100 different people that were involved in you know, donating items or letting, letting the museum borrow items uh, for the Tartan exhibit. Give me a bit about the behind the scenes on how that works. So I guess, um, you know, it all starts off with the concept, starts off with the idea. Um, we originally started off um, looking at a book written by Jonathan Fares in 2008, funnily enough, called Tartan. And it was when we picked up this book and we flicked through it and it got us thinking, we can actually probably make an exhibition out of this. So we started, we approached Jonathan, we got him on the team, and we then assembled a curatorial team inside. So there was only like four of us working on this absolutely mammoth project. Um, and we just knew as well that when curating a tartan exhibition in Scotland, it wasn't simply going to be just taking a few objects connected to the subject and then placing them in a room together. We had to really kind of spread that net wide, invite as many people to the conversation as possible, and um, just really get everyone within the sort of cultural landscape in Scotland really enthused about it as well, and they were. Um, so we decided that we would then reach out to um, National Museum Scotland, uh, you know, a lot of the national sort of lenders, Tate, uh, V&A in South Kensington, but there was a lot, a lot of gems sort of hidden away in small private collections as well. And it was these objects that turned out also to be key objects as well. So we had to then kind of keep them on board as well. And we ended up, yeah, taking on around about 80 lenders. And that was from, like I said, these different sizes of collections. And also not only ones in Scotland, but then as far afield as North America and even Japan as well. And then, of course, I came up with this bright idea called the People's Tartan, which was our community call out where we wanted to really kind of plug the gaps in the show and actually show Tartan as a more everyday experience for people and give people the opportunity to then submit their own 
items to the show to then show what Tart meant to them. So of course that meant taking on even more lenders and we ended up with like an additional 20 lenders on top of that. So a lot of conversations going, a lot of paperwork, um, a lot of logistics involved with that. Basically, to put in a nutshell, it took over my life for the past two and a half years ever since its inception in December 2020. That, that's, it sounds like a, a lot of working parts. You know, when you, when you think about a museum, you just think, oh, you just go there and they have all the stuff. Like, no, you guys don't own all of that stuff. You have to get, you know, contracts and, you know, get a hundred people's buy-ins on the concept and the, their willingness to let you borrow their prized possessions. I, I know you've spoken before about how there's a bit of cultural cringe among some Scots with Tartan when it comes to all things Tartan. Um, why do you think Scotland, or why do you think Tartan needs a spokesperson within Scotland? Well, I think uh, it's because it's been a, as you touch upon this idea of cultural cringe, where I think the way how Tartan's developed to really become this kind of nexus point of a visual representation of a whole country, um, it's really kind of created almost like an image which, in some views, has turned out to then be a false image in their viewpoints. And I guess that's something that really kind of factored in, especially in academic circles in around about the late 70s and early 80s as well. And I think now that what's quite interesting, and that's a really kind of tumultuous time politically in Scotland as well. You had the devolution referendum, you had Margaret Thatcher coming into power. So there was really this major point of questioning one's own national identity and what that was represented like on the national stage. And here we are again, in fact, at a point where there is a lot of kind of political upheaval. You know, we had a referendum in 2014, but I think now that there's been a lot of time that's then passed from that initial sort of introspective look. And there is a lot of research that's been sort of uh, going out then into the subject of which there was, wasn't the capacity for back then. So I think um, when it comes to the textile, the cloth, the pattern needing a, an ambassador, a spokesperson, is really to actually almost safeguard it in a way. And by safeguard, I don't mean necessarily kind of like gatekeep the subject. I just mean safeguard the knowledge that has been generated around its production, uh, safeguarding the fact that uh, there's a consistent register that doesn't schism onto different registers. And also, I think, um, protecting sort of the material survivors of um, tartan that still survives and protecting that for future generations as well. Yeah. Do you think that it's, um, you know, broadly speaking, and I know I'm asking you to speak for all Scots to some degree, and so I apologize. Um, but do you think it's as as a trend? Do you think it's where you're getting as a country? Do you think you're getting to a better place with the cultural cringe aspect, or do you think it's getting worse because more people, more designers, more fashion people are kind of playing with it as in within elements of things? I think in Scotland that. Uh... Uh, there's certainly, there's still the political divide, and that's something I think that's always going to be within the nation's history when it comes to how we view ourselves as a country, how we view um, the images that actually represent ourselves as a nation. And I think also on both sides of the divide, there's also a point where everyone kind of still engages with Tartan on some level. I don't think there's ever an aspect where 
people completely shut it out of their sort of life within the sort of Scottish cultural scene because um, it's always there. Um, I could bring forward one example of fact, somebody who was on our advisory panel and they absolutely thought they detested the subject, but then we rightly pointed out, in fact, they used Tartan within their own work as well. So it was really something that they couldn't really escape from. So I think there is definitely a, almost a bit of a reckoning that's happening and that's it's one that people are kind of just kind of getting to grips with and not taking it too seriously as well because i think that's really where it all came from is people just taking tartan too seriously i mean it is a serious subject you know there's a lot of thought and consideration that goes into its research and development um but i think there's a point as well where you've got to kind of just you know live with it yeah and there's a sliding scale between uh people's individuals opinions or desires on the matter on you know whether they want to be uber traditional and they want to honor the tradition and just wear things for formal events in a very traditional way or you know on the other end of the scale fashion designers just playing with it as a pattern within the their own art form and their, within their own expression within a fashions kind of setting yeah absolutely i think um i think yeah there's certainly that point where um you have fashion designers who will be totally transgressive with it. You know, they will not be not that they're not being considerate of its history and of its um, of its uh, heritage, but they actually just see it as a means to an end to really kind of actually say in some circles, you know, either break up the form of the human body, or they'll be looking for ways to use that color and the pattern to then yeah sort of break up the profile as well. Um, or you'll have fashion designers who. Um, like Alexander McQueen, who will actually be really resonant with that history, will really sort of dive into it. And then, well, in, in Alexander McQueen's case, actually then use the clan tartan as that sort of almost branding to his work as well. So there are, there's, yeah, it's a shifting scale of how people engage with it. And yeah, I think it's all at the end of the day, it's very subjective. Now, we talk here a lot about uh, what tartan means to those of us in the diaspora around the world, how it's such a cultural marker of Scottishness, so to speak. Um, in your experience, what are the differences that those in the diaspora kind of use tartan for and use it in their own expression versus how it's used in Scotland, whether it's fashion, whether it's heritage, whether, you know, how we, how we introduce it into our lives? Mm. Um, that's a really interesting question, in fact, because, you know, there's definitely a way to shift it of is this, you know, what are the differences? But also, I think it's great and important to remember sort of what is the connections and what connects those together as well. Because um, when it comes to connection, I think there's uh, folk in Scotland, you know, will like what the tradition is now in sort of North America and the diaspora. They will wear their tartan because it's, you know, their tartan their sort of family tartan. Um, and I think the attitude only really change is when it becomes the frequency of when that's worn and also in what form it's worn as well. So you'll find in Scotland every day on the street, you know, somebody might have, you know, a, a tartan scarf that they've bought, you know, within their family tartan. Or in many cases, you know, they just love the color of what that tartan is. Um, but also, um, yeah, I think, it especially is one thing that tartan over here tends to kind of kind of be reserved for a little bit of for formal events 
um, you know, weddings, Kayleys, burn suppers, um, graduations as well. So um, the only other time you'll really find sort of kilt wearing in Scotland is if, you know, you're someone who's a, a real sort of academic to the subject, if you're trying to be kind of like a bit of a transgressive fashionista, or if you're an absolute crank like myself. So yeah, the kilt wearing, I think, is certainly something that grows stronger with distance. Um, so it's something that you'll, I think, from my observations anyway, you see it as a more, or more of an everyday kind of experience for those who want to sort of tap into their own, their own heritage as well. Because that's what's, I guess, is so, um, what's so powerful about tartan it is this sort of visual marker of one's, of one's feeling of their own place in the world. Um, especially when it comes to, um, well, within the diaspora circles of that sort of feeling of one's displacement from the supposed, you know, kind of like home country. Um, and also I think it's, it's quite unfair, I think, because I think there's a lot of um, sort of opinions that come out of Scotland where um, people sort of view kind of the diaspora wearing tartan and not actually thinking that, they should be wearing it or they're not doing it right. But actually, I think once, you know, that sort of um, almost severance is there, it's completely out of the home country's hands. This is completely for the diaspora to make up how they will represent themselves in their own identities. So um, I think what actually differs is kind of those sort of the frequency. Um, and But what's actually one thing that I've noticed that really is something that doesn't really change, you know, on this side of the Atlantic or the other, is those who take traditional kilting seriously. You'll find that it's very sort of well united on what the approaches are, and um, what the sort of, even the amount of research and collegiateness between folk is very united on that front. So yeah, some differences of opinion, but um, I think there's a lot united as well. One thing that, uh... Uh, uh, somebody had said to me in the past, it made, uh, Scott said to me in the past that made sense. And I want to get your, uh, your sense of whether you believe it to be broadly speaking, kind of true as well. Um, he said to me that, you know, Americans and Scots are wearing kilts for different reasons. Americans are wearing it as a connection to their family heritage, generally speaking, and Scots are wearing it as more of a national identity pride in their country as a basic, broadly speaking, type reason. Do you find that to be reasonably accurate or nope, Scots are wearing it for the same reasons? Tell me. Um, that's actually a really good question because I think on that front, um, we are wearing it for different reasons, but I think even then in Scotland, there's even different reasons of why kilts are then being sort of worn in Scotland. So you do have this kind of, it might be, you know, the sort of national umbrella, but when it comes to, you know, certain contexts such as, like aforementioned weddings, it is kind of tapping into that exact sort of feeling that folk within the diaspora hold as well for their own family lineage. Um, that's why you would see, from my own experience anyway, um, my my dad, my uncles as well, all wearing the McLeod tartan. Um, just because my great grandfather was a MacLeod, and it all kind of descends from there. Um, so it's actually what stories we kind of latch into on our own lineages that I think um, are something that sort of 
connects within that. But yeah, when it comes to that sort of national umbrella, that's certainly in the realms of the Tartan army. You know, the football matches, um, Scots ambassadors abroad like that, who will kind of then make that that representation under one roof. Right. That the uh, the the thing that I found curious is the uh, and the reason I brought it up as far as national or or just yeah a broader you know uh, meaning behind it versus familial necessarily is also the proliferation of universal and like fashiony type tartans through the higher industry in Scotland versus like renting clan tartans. I know like currently for McCall's or any of the big higher places, there's a lot like they're almost exclusively, you know, universal or fashion tartans, not Royal Stuart, Campbell, you know, McLeod type things to rent. Do you find that as well or no? Yeah, I think that's a, a major factor of where things have changed here um, as the cult hire industry has changed in Scotland over the, like, the past 20 years as well. And there is kind of this, um, you'll find that there's a lot of, yeah, tartans out there which are kind of, you know, your kind of greys and your purples and really sort of like, um, I guess it's just seeing uh, a shift in fashions as like, even contained within the kilt hire industry is how you would see fashions change, you know, within sort of contemporary design or um, even within the traditional uh, Highland attire uh, community as well. So um, I think it's something that is definitely going to be with us for a while. Um, and it's also, I think it's a lot of it's actually, I think, down to just getting the aesthetic right, which I think is a lot of. A lot of concerns for many kind of Scots for their weddings nowadays. You know, they want that sort of that perfect um, sort of visual marker, and they're not really too concerned, I guess, about the lineage. There are those who are, of course, um, but they are more actually wanting to kind of, you know, give that uh, aspect of sort of Scottishness to it. You know, and that level of, in their minds, authenticity. So, how have your own personal views of Tartan? changed or evolved over the years? I was exposed to tartan, I think, early on from, um, from my granny. Um, and I think it's because since it was always in my life, uh, I didn't really kind of take too much notice of it. I've always got a sort of personal, I guess, sort of positive memory connected to those times. And I think um, that's how it was so easy for me to kind of um, take on the subject when eventually actually I was then involved in the Tartan exhibition because I, I'm certainly no specialist um, and in, in anything, yeah, I think I now have a completely newfound respect for Tartan and that was just purely through the amount of hours of research going into the subject and speaking with as many folk from across that landscape as possible and even um, really trying to then get a real understanding of the cloth through the likes of what you know Peter McDonald are doing, where you know they began weaving the tartan, and I thought, okay, now that I curate the tartan exhibition with my colleagues Kirsty and Barry and Jonathan, I think it's now about time that I kind of learn how to actually weave tartan as well. So I kind of did it back to front. But after I did that, I then found I kind of then got it. <laughs> I got a bit of an epiphany, you know, about that sort of materiality and that sort of extra care that goes into the textile and that process. You know, ask me three years ago, you know, what my thoughts are on tartan. I'd be like, eh, I wore it to my wedding last uh, last year, 
that's probably about it. You are, but now through through your uh, time at the museum and through the exhibition, you are a sincere student of the culture, as we say. Quite so, quite so, indeed. I'm uh, I'm very much a Tartanista now. So we know that you have a very, very important piece in the exhibition, the Glen Affric Tartan. Why don't you tell me how you came into possession of that and kind of what the story of that one was? Since we had um, approached the Scottish Tartans Authority and Peter MacDonald from the early days as an early stakeholder in the exhibition, um, we had uh, turned around to John Peter and asked him, do you have any you know, early examples, any um, you know, proto-Tartans in your collection? And uh, Peter said, oh, yes, we do have this this fragment. Um, it was found in Glen Affric. It was in a, they reckoned it was in a peat bog as well. And um, do you want to come view it? So I, as, as and when I then viewed the Scottish Tartans Authority's objects, um, they kindly brought along this fragment of textile as well. And actually just looking at it and just actually then hearing how um, enthused Peter was about how little we knew about it, I kind of felt like there was something there to kind of scratch away and kind of uncover. So I said to them both, why don't I take this back to my curatorial colleagues? Um, I'll lobby for this to see if we can include this within the show, um, if potentially some more research is done into it. And of course, the rest is history. We have then Scottish Tartans Authority kindly um, conducted dialysis through the National Museum Scotland and then radiocarbon 14 dating uh, through the laboratory in Glasgow. And I would actually, we hoped that would then give us a result and answer of what we could actually then put on the interpretation panel, because I'd written that up as um, a very general statement of possibly before 18th century. So we didn't know for definite, but we certainly trust Peter's judgment when it comes to his you know 40 year experience with the textile. So it was actually then just in the final few weeks before opening the exhibition that we got that result back from the Scottish Tartans Authority that it wasn't um, you know 18th century, it wasn't 17th century, it was, you know, we're talking about 16th century. So this was pushing the, the goalposts back by, you know, a good 300 years of what we, where we thought they were. So having that 95% confidence level between 1500 and 1600, you can't argue with the science. It was a really, really old piece of textile, a really special piece of textile. And in fact, it really did pick up the traction then once we announced it to the world um, in that week before opening. So where did they, uh, where did they have the tartan at the STA? Was it in like the back of a filing cabinet somewhere tucked away in a box? because they didn't know what to do with it? Or what was, their, what was their story of how they brought it forward? So they always had it within their collection store and it was a uh, material, it was um, um, handed then into what was then uh, the precursor for the Scottish Tartans Authority and Scottish Tartans Society in the 1980s. And so they kind of always knew they had it 
it was just, I guess there wasn't really that opportunity to really kind of do something with it. And, and that's really because the last time, you know, apart from the Amazing Wild and Majestic show in 2018-19, uh, which had a, you know, a particular lens of Highlandism, there wasn't really an opportunity to kind of show a, a sort of a wide variety of different sort of tart material because, yeah, the last exhibition that had uh, been in Scotland was in the early 1990s. So it was just a real point of, I guess, happenstance and opportunity that this had arisen. Now, I know that um, the Falkirk Tartan is actually older than Glen Affric. Um, why is the Glen Affric Tartan as, if not more important than the Falkirk Tartan? You know, that, I think that's what was actually quite remarkable was the great debate that this started online when we first, uh, between ourselves and the STA announced it to the world was, um, you had many, many folk, you know, say, oh, well, actually, you know, we have this fragment um, called the Falkirk Tartan that dates from the third century. And that's actually the oldest tartan in Scotland. And I guess it really kind of, we relished that debate a little bit because it really got everyone speaking about you know, what does make tartan tartan? And I guess what separates the Glen Affric textile from the, um, the Falkirk fragment or the Falkirk tartan was um, the fact that the Falkirk fragment, um, it's composed of two different um, types of, well, two different colors of wool. Um, they're undyed, so they're using natural fleece. It's woven in a, in a check, style so you know an equal sort of sort of square pattern that's being created all the way throughout when the Falkirk fragment was produced um, the whole concept of Scotland uh, didn't exist there was yet to be a Scotland for like another you know 500 years at least you know when the, co uh, the concept of Alapa had come together as one kind of unified country and you had a very sort of similar textile tradition all the way throughout uh, Iron Age Europe at the time of these sort of woven checkered textiles. And, uh, you know, people were using it as an everyday cloth, but it's only really when you jump forward to the um, 14th, 15th, 16th century that you then actually have the word tartan come into the lexicon as well. When it comes to the actual properties of the Glen Affric, it's woven with um, multiple dye stuffs. Um, it's also a complex pattern as well. So it's composed of um, checks over checks and over stripes, you know, sort of layered over the top of one another. So it's actually creating a bit of a, like what you see in many tartans, uh, a bit of a three-dimensionality about it, you know, a bit of sort of layering going on and seeing this really wonderful sort of interplay of color happening that's actually making it such an attractive uh, force that it is today. So um, yeah, I think that's why we're sort of creating that, that difference. And when it comes to, in fact, the Falkirk fragment, I know this is me throwing some shade at it. I absolutely love the Falkirk fragment, but it was actually, I guess, a bit of a romantic term given to that fragment back when Henshaw wrote their paper in the 1950s and called it as such. Um, because within that same paper that was written, you have other woven Czech textiles being discussed, but none of those are ever called tartan in a sense. So um, I think it was just something that's kind of built its own mythology over time. So moving beyond the Glen Affric tartan, a little bit more about the rest of the exhibit. 
if you had to pick your favorite either piece or or something within either the museum or the exhibit, the tartan exhibit itself, what would your favorite piece be? If I had to sort of just pick out one object that wasn't the Glen Affric, because everyone loves the Glen Affric, it would probably be the um the wonderful sort of composition that we have where we have a an original banyan or wrapping gown from around about the mid-18th century. And there's a really stunning, beautiful portrait of um, a gentleman known as Sir Robert uh, Dalrymple of Castleton. And he's also then wearing a wrapping gown. And it's probably the only piece of portraiture in oils that actually depicts somebody wearing one of these sort of tartan wrapping gowns. And what I love about it is because you know, we have this whole idea of what Highland dress is, that, you know, you had trues, you had the great kilt as well, but you also had this other kind of fashion that was developing at the time for these really informal sort of uh, coats that one would wear, you know, in their house or even sometimes out in, uh, out in the environs as well. And um, I really think it's a special um, representation of this really little known sort of kind of like fashion trend for tartan. Um, and I think also then to sort of expand upon it, uh, the painting itself was actually then uh, painted in 1743. So that's a really significant date because the, the sitter who was actually um, had passed on at the time because it was a posthumous portrait, um, he was a a Hanoverian supporter. He was a, a major sort of supporter for the Union. And it's then a period of time where Tartan's actually been seen as a bit of a political uh, force for then Jacobitism. So you can see how there's still this sort of shifting idea of what then Tartan's representing. So it's not just purely this nationalistic sort of lens or Jacobite lens. It's actually one who's kind of actually sort of showing support for one's and one's love of one's own country as well, no matter what side of the divide they're on. So yeah, you can you can probably tell I can speak about this portrait for hours. I just love it. It's it's so good because yeah. it goes alongside then this original banyan, which is from that period. So to make that sort of linkage between the two is just oh, so good. And it's one thing that I, I never thought about it through this lens before was that we're we are so obsessed with you know the origins of tartan as it relates to highland dress and looking back at you know we'll never know when the first kilt was made but we're trying to get as much you know data about that as we can or how it evolved over the time or, or through time um, and how it was worn in scotland in relates to highland dress but never or seldomly how it relates to fashion and the origins of that story within it it's we're always thinking about Highland dress aspect as a symbol of national, you know, identity and the national, you know, dress national costume, if you will. Um, but that's an interesting thing going at it from the lens of the origins of the fashion angle of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we always think that, you know, I guess contemporary designers and fashion designers are actually kind of, you know, um, pulling tartan away from its kind of its its real origins and its real kind of, um, I guess, authenticity about it. But in fact, this is something that's been always happening with the cloth, yeah. with, the, yeah. with the textile. I mean, the first ever fashion prints um, that are coming out of 
of France, you know, of showing the Marveluses wearing all these really daring dresses. Um, you also have ones depicting Tartan being sort of composed of that. But it's also happening at the exact same time. The uh, Highland Society of London are starting to then sort of categorise and actually then um, collect, you know, this idea and formulate this idea of clan Tartans. So they've really went hand in hand. And um, and like the aforementioned idea of, of these wrapping gowns and banyans, um, that being a fashionable trend that really comes around because of um, the, you know, the so-called West's connections then with the uh, trade happening in Japan and in India and then bringing this new cut of garment over to Europe for them to have these European cloths and textiles and apply to them. One thing uh, we've often said is that, you know, Tartan is Scotland's gift to the world. And now I'm realizing that statement has been true for much longer than I'm thinking it has actually been true. It's a very interesting angle on this whole thing. Hmm. Mm. And I think as well, um, yeah, you have the idea then that actually, you know, it's been, it certainly has been, you know, uh, almost like a two-way dialogue as well, because there's so much that actually, you know, um, tartan has then found itself being, you know, applied to new forms, new fabrics, new ideas um, all across the world, and actually then can, kind of completely being reinvented to have its then own meaning within these contexts. So, um, yeah, I think it's like this example with the wrapping gown, you know, if it wasn't for these, these links, you know, across the world, then we, we would never kind of have what was what I call like the great granddaddy of the tartan dressing gown we have today. So, yeah. So as a researcher slash investigator throughout your entire role and putting the entire tartan exhibition together, what is the one nagging question that you have eating at your soul or at the back of your brain that you know will probably never be answered, but it's the question you would love to have answered or if you could travel back in time and see a particular thing in a particular moment, what is that thing? I mean, that is a, there's so many, I guess there's so many questions that actually still arise. You know, we think we put on a tartan exhibition and we start then kind of answering a lot of questions, but it actually just dredges up more. Um, you know, one major question is, you know, have something like, you know, the Glen Affric find, when will we find, you know, a, another major discovery like that again um, is a big question. But the one that really goes through my mind is actually, after looking at the textile of the pattern of the Glen Affric, is actually, what was that weaver thinking? How did they think about how they were setting out that pattern? Were they even thinking about it? And what exactly then were they hoping that textile would be used as, as well? So these are all things, you know, Give me a time machine, I'll go back, I'll try and find that person. Um, because it's, it's kind of like the mysteries we'll just never know. And it's one thing that I think, you know, we've got to kind of come to terms with. Um, and I think it's easily something to come to terms with because that's just Tartan's allure. There's many myths. There's many stories that are kind of, you know, kind of passed down, um, a lot of mistruths as well. Uh, but that would be the major one is kind of what what were you thinking? What were you wanting to do with this? You know, what was it going to become and how 
how did you end up, whoever this person may be, how did it end up there? You know, just, I want to know. That's, it's one of the, one of the, the, the weird, satisfying and frustrating parts of my journey within all this as well is the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So it's, I can imagine you're probably similar as well in doing your research and like, ah, now you find two little bits of information, but now you have 10 more questions that you're unanswered. Then you got to start digging at them. So it's, yeah, it's, it's exhilarating and frustrating simultaneously. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, if anything, it's kind of, you know, even though, you know, the exhibition's on, it's on show, there's, you know, so many things that we try to like tap into and tell that story. But there's kind of like, there's so much work that I'm still even doing in my own time afterward of thinking, oh, you know, this story would have been interesting to tell. This one also go going down this rabbit hole would have been a really kind of interesting factor to play around with and kind of explore in further detail. Um, so, yeah, it's always kind of like you've always got to kind of, you know, come to terms with the limitations of just there's only so much time that we have and there's only so much um, things that we're going to find out within our lifetimes. Uh, how do you reckon, how do you balance the long-standing tradition of Tartan with the way that the fashion industry just kind of plays with it, you know, heritage versus fashion. How do you, how do you live with both of those things in one body? Um, I guess, well, curatorially, uh, it's making sure that we are shouting out about how that tradition of clan tartans originally formed, um, to make sure that we are kind of respecting that history, that heritage, and also while all the way interrogating it as well. Um, and also kind of trying to show, you know, that sort of bridging that gap between two subjects or one you see as two different elements because, you know, um, I think I touched upon it before, but the whole time that we've had sort of like traditional Highland attire and um, uh, clan tartans, there's always been this sort of fashion market going alongside it. And um, that's through, you know, the numerous sort of fancy tartans that were being sort of churned out by Wilsons of Bannockburn, the ones that, you know, weren't even given names. They were just kept as pattern, you know, number 17, number 18. So it just shows that there's such a driving demand for it. Um, but I think what we see now with contemporary designers is only just a, a, the next involvement of that sort of living tradition that really started with the likes of Wilson's of Bannockburn. And they're just really kind of um, pushing it into the next stage. And that's, again, sort of like looking at some contemporary fashion designers who are really kind of, I guess, respectful of the history as well. And also, you know, the fashion designers who are actually just utilizing the textile because it's a, a bonny color to use. It's a, a bonny pattern, one that's actually going to make whoever's wearing it really stand out. Um, and I think that's something that's always going to kind of unite, actually, both uh, traditional attire and contemporary fashion. Is they're both kind of trying to establish the same thing at the end of the day. They're trying to stand out. That's a very good point. I know a lot of people, especially in, in wearing kilts, we describe them as the peacocks. You know, you want to be loud and proud, as you said, in your outfit. So 
where do you see the future of tartan going either within fashion or within highland dress what do you see as the next stage the next evolution of the of the cloth uh, so i think it's it's certainly going to continue to to blossom anyway as with um uh, tartan there's always going to be sort of ebbs and flows about its popularity you know these real sort of saturation points that you'll find over its history as well uh, and I think that will continue to happen. Um, the fashion industry, they'll continue to produce exciting designs and possibilities akin to, you know, your Westwoods and your McQueen's, um, Charles Jeffrey, who I've uh, touched upon, and the likes even of Nicholas Daly are certainly ones to watch. Um, but also I look forward to actually seeing what the next sort of major trend within the sort of traditional kilt circle is as well. Because that is something that's, you know, subtly moving in Scotland through, you know, the use of more um, sort of greys and tartans that don't have specific family connections for weddings. But I'd like to sort of put that idea of, you know, if we are going, you know, 100 years into the future, what's going to be our sort or what will be then sort of the Prince Charlie jacket of that time in the future? What are they going to view upon as we kind of view upon the Prince Charlie Jacket's formation in the 1920s, because there's bound to be something that is going to shift that style as well, that's either going to you know, push it forward into a new kind of idea of what traditional is, or is going to then kind of more kind of turn back and then look at sort of the really kind of earlier sort of modes of production and tartan wearing as well. And, you know, you never know, you might have the full Highland Revival outfit coming out and being a major thing again of it's tartan top to toe. And uh, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that. I've noticed the same kind of thing is that, you know, uh, there's a bit of a trend towards the romanticism, towards the Victorian style. And it's kind of, it all comes in cycles. Fashion goes in cycles where it's now kind of looking back before you look forward and then taking bits and elements of the past and then dragging it, <laughs> kicking and screaming into the future. So I don't, I don't think I see in the near future any like Star Trek super you know, streamlined type outfits for the next version of the Prince Charlie. Um, but I think that the the next current thing will be more Sheriff Mirrors and Montrose and you know those kind of jackets and styles brought back into fashion before it gets to the next thing. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. I think um, you'll start to maybe see a refinement of those. Um, so, like you said, with the Montrose, you might find that they'll have a bit more of a modern cut to them, a bit more of a modern twist, you know, and by that, by sort of modern, I mean that, you know, a lot of the kind of elements will sort of be sort of minimalized or reduced or finessed in a way. Um, it's certainly the direction of travel that I would see it going. And I think as well, it really depends on, I think, how... Um, how the elements of like sort of tweed kilt jackets moves as well, because you know are the elements of that going to be reduced? Are they going to be, um, yeah, sort of made into a different form as well? Fortunately, I don't think we'll see the full tartan get up anytime soon, but you're certainly going to see some development on that front, I think. So, what's the number one thing that you want people to know about VNA Dundee, and why is what you all collectively are doing? so important so the number one thing i think i'd love folk to know about us is 
we don't have a collection. So, you know, if you'd love to offer something to us, happy days. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the offer. But unfortunately, we can't, you know, store it or keep it. Um, but it forces us to work collaboratively with people. And that is why Tartan has so many folk involved with it, because we do need to ask other folk for assistance, for help. Um, so actually to make Tartan happen, I think what's happened, it's, it's certainly made the exhibition far more enriching, in my opinion, the fact that we've not just turned to one source collection and kind of unpacked that in a way, but uh, when you invite so many voices to the table, um, much like the definitions of Tartan, in fact, um, Scottish design here and how we have it in the museum is very subjective. Um, it's a subject open to many possibilities, you know, and it means actually what's possible to curate within a Tartan exhibition, within a Museum of Scottish Design, is really endless opportunities to put aspects together. Um, so I think that's what I'd like to leave with folk, is the fact that, you know, Scottish design, it's not just a, a, a narrow view of, you know, tartan, kilts, um, Charles Rennie Macintosh, the Glasgow style. There's many connections still to be made and to be had. So as you're the guest, I'm going to give you the final thought. What words of wisdom would you share with someone who's either uh, wanting to work for a museum or wants to work in uh, conservation type practices? So I would say with that, um, never fear if you don't have a subject uh, in mind that you want to specialize in. Because um, I didn't find tartan, and this is going to sound really gushy, but tartan found me. <laughs> so um, it unlocked something within me, you know, this generalist that I am. And so there's no, there's no qualms about having sort of disparate niches that you feel don't connect together. I mean, I got involved in uh, curatorial practice through restoring nuclear bunkers. That's got nothing to do with Tartan whatsoever, but here I am. So yeah, just never fear over that aspect. Keep to a generalist and let, let your passions find you. So for those who want to uh, uh, see the exhibit, A, when is it running through? And is it ever going to go on the road? Oh, well, so the exhibition we have, it's still here till the 14th of January. So still, um, you know, plenty, plenty of time if you're in the neighbourhood. Um, and when it comes to that second question, um, I guess I could quote from the lines of Bonnie Dundee that you've not seen the last of our bonnets and me. So we're very much in all seriousness, you know, the ambitions there to put it on the road. So, um, yeah, just watch this space. Very good. Well, well, we'll put a link down below in the comments or in the uh, in the description so that people can follow it and figure out if it does, you know, whether it's, you know, two months from now or two years from now, they can figure out how to get in touch or how to find and find the exhibit and be able to experience it for themselves. James, I want to thank you very much for spending time with me today. This has been a very, very enlightening, insightful conversation. So cheers to you, my man. Thank you. It was a great chinwag. Thanks for joining us. The intro music for Tartan Talk is Irish Coffee by Giorgio De Campo. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. 
You can find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. If you like the show, it would really mean a lot to us if you left a rating since it helps new people find our show. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava.